I have been reading, just started actually, uh, Steve Jobs' biography. Uh, he's impacted our culture in a pretty substantial way. Not a bad person to understand, know something about. But uh, it talks about uh, Jobs' run-in with Christianity. It says, even though they were not fervent about their faith, Jobs' parents wanted him to have a religious upbringing, so they took him to the Lutheran church most Sundays. That came to an end when he was 13. In July 1968, Life magazine published a shocking cover showing a pair of starving children in Biafra. Jobs took it to Sunday school and confronted the church's pastor. If I raise my finger, will God know which one I'm going to raise even before I do it? The pastor answered, yes. God knows everything. Jobs then pulled out the life cover and asked, well, does God know about this? And what's, he, what's going to happen to those children? Steve, I know you don't understand, but yes, God knows about that. Job's, annou- Job's announced that he didn't want to have anything to do with worshiping such a God, and he never went back to church. Maybe you're here this morning, you're a doubter in the manner of Steve Jobs. Something has happened in life. Maybe you, you were going to church at one point. Uh, maybe you were more passionate. Maybe you've been coming to church for forever, but you've been more passionate in the past. But something has happened. Just, just bring some doubts. Maybe your doubter here this morning after the manner of Mark Harris. When I uh, went to Moody, I went there. I was going to be a, a pastor. I was in college preparation for this. Just dropping all the money I had to get this through. But, but that summer when I got out of my, my first year, uh, I got a second shift job. All my friends had first shift jobs, and so I never saw anybody. It was a lonely sort of time, six days a week I was working. But it afforded me a lot of time to spend, I mean, three hours a day in prayer, study. But, but a wild thing happened. It seemed that the more I, I prayed, the further God became. And, and the, the, the answers to my prayer, was, were, were, they weren't there. And the sense that I had that God was here, it wasn't, it wasn't there. And I had these doubts that started to creep into my mind. I said, you know what, Harris, you're giving your life for this. You're, you're going to college to become a pastor. I sure hope it's true. Because if it's not true, what are you going to do? Down the road, you find out this is all not true and you've given your life to it. What then? These doubts started really working on me. I, you know, I started thinking, though, well, when I get back to school, I'm going to hang out with all my buds again and everything's going to be fine and all that stuff will go away and I'll realize, oh, it was so false. Well, I got back to school and the doubts didn't go away. Matter of fact, they increased. And I would remember that that uh, uh, second year, first part of it, I would be on, by my bedside many, I don't know how, this, how long this went on, but many evenings trying to pray. But I couldn't pray because this might not be true. And I would just be crying because I wanted it to be true. But who could know for sure? And my poor roommate must have thought I was coming unglued. I was coming unglued. So he probably thought, right. Well, maybe you doubt in the manner of Mark Harris. You kind of want this to be true. It would be nice. But there's just some questions. There's just some... Now, you don't voice it because it's not politically correct in church to voice those things. But they're there and they impact the way, way you live. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. When you, when you talk about Jesus, 
Many folk don't have those doubts, per se, about the historicity of Jesus. I mean, some do, but if you understand history at all, you know that there are, there are, there are ten sources, non-Christian, anti-Christian sources, that point to the historicity of Jesus. They were written at the time of Jesus. They talk about him. Yeah, it talks all about, about Jesus. Encyclopedia Britannica sums them up this way. It says, there are these independent accounts prove that in ancient times, even the opponents of Christianity never doubted the historicity of Jesus which was disputed for the first time and on inadequate grounds by several authors at the end of the 19th, 18th during the 19th, and at the beginning of the 20th centuries. Britannica, 1985. So folk will talk about Jesus. Oh, Jesus is okay. But, I mean, he's a superstar, right? Didn't he help poor people? I mean, especially today, and he, he stuck up for the disenfranchised. He took on the establishment. But you start talking about the resurrection, and suddenly the tone of the conversation shifts. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, 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 I don't know about that. It's a di- different issue. It's a different issue. Uh, however, we need to be aware that there are um, non-Christian sources that were written about the time of Jesus that, that account for or that state his resurrection. Flavius Josephus was a historian paid by the Roman government. It would have been some pretty intense consequences if he would have been found writing that which was not historically correct, or at least that which he believed was not historically correct. Time of Jesus, he writes this. He says, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. Now, even though there's, there's... there seems to be some historical evidence around this resurrection thing. Still, folk have some doubts about this. Doubts maybe because the, the biological side is kind of difficult to accept. But more so along the philosophical reasons. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, that puts him in a whole different category. Josh McDowell lets us know that of all the world's religions, only four of them, are centered around a personality versus you know, philosophical propositions. Uh, but of the four, only one of them have an empty tomb that's attributed to their, their founder. In 1900 B.C., Abraham, the, the, the father of, of Judaism, died. In 483, according to the Buddhist writings, the original Buddha died. In 643 A.D., Muhammad died. In 33 A.D., Jesus Christ died, but in 33 A.D., there's also a count that says he rose from the dead. That the prophets proclaimed that, that Jesus, before this happened to him, said this was going to happen to him as well. And folks start thinking, if he really rose from the dead, this puts Jesus in a whole different category than than Buddha and Muhammad and and Abraham. Just a whole different category. And you really have to wrestle with what he said if he really did rise from the dead. This is a major thing. But yet folks still, uh, for such reasons, have have doubts. And and what we want to do this morning is we want to look at the granddaddy of all doubters. You know, in in, uh, our history, we've got uh, people whose legacy lives on, their their character lives on in their name. Um, 
Alexander the Great. That'd be a kind of a cool legacy to have, wouldn't it? Or Conan the Barbarian. That wouldn't be so, so cool. Or Rahab the Prostitute. Let's not go there. Um, or Thomas the Doubter. The Doubting Thomas. One day you'll see him in heaven. You'll bump into him. You'll say, who are you? Thomas. Oh, the doubter, right? You'll say, yeah, yeah, that's me. That's me, the doubter. Uh, the doubting Thomas. And we want to look at his life because this interesting thing about this guy is he was not afar off. He, he walked with Jesus and he had doubts. And so if, in fact, you, you know Jesus, but you have doubts and you wonder, let's, let's, let's look at, at, at Thomas this morning and see if there's some, some application we can draw to our life. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. As we look at, at this encounter with the, the doubting Thomas. Verse 24 of John chapter 20. And if you don't have your Bibles, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. I don't know the page number, but uh, 24, uh, chapter 20, verse 24. It says, now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now, let's just stop there for just a minute, just to look at, look at Thomas. Uh, his, his, Thomas is, is, is Hebrew or Aramaic. Didymus is Greek. It both means the same thing, twin. So we obviously had a twin. We don't know anything about this person. Uh, but notice he was one of the twelve. Now, the way things worked back then is the rabbis would go on the prowl looking for the brightest and the sharpest and the, 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 the students who would have the most potential to bring around them, to train them up. Because if they had the brightest and the sharpest students around them who had this reputation in the community and then they went forth expounding their view of Judaism, they would, it would go well for them. They would look, they would look good. It's the like reason why schools give scholarships, not because they're benevolent institutions per se, because they know when they look at you that you just might and be able to make a name for yourself one day. And if you do, they want their school's name associated with it. Well, the rabbis were doing the same thing. Well, Jesus is kind of a, a Johnny-come-lately, and so he's got to pick up his, his students from leftovers. You know, Thomas hadn't been chosen. And so Jesus is looking through, and he's picking, and Jesus puts together a really ragtag group, doesn't he? I mean, my goodness, he's got some fishermen thrown in there. He's got a tax collector. He's hard up. I'm, I'm picking folk. He's, he's got, a, he's got a, a religious extremist. The only one with any kind of blue blood was Judas. And we know what happened with Judas, right? So, and he's got, he has Thomas. He chooses Thomas. Thomas is one of the ones that was chosen. You didn't decide to apply to be part of the st- student body here. You were, you were asked. It's invitation only. But Jesus chooses Thomas. And we need to know that, that, that Thomas was just a very normal... Per, I mean, of all of Jesus' disciples, Thomas was the most vanilla one of them all. Not a whole lot of great stuff attributed to Thomas. He, we don't see him preaching major sermons and acts. We, he wasn't tagged by God to write, you know, like Matthew or, 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 or Peter or John. This wasn't part of Thomas. He, he didn't do a lot of major things. He brought nothing really to the table that we can see. He's just Thomas. Just normal. Sometimes Jesus chooses just normal Thomas people. Uh, but but you, you need to know that, that Thomas, uh, you, you ask yourself, well, why did he choose him? Well, the, we, one incident we see, the first incident we see with Thomas, we have to wait all the way to John 11 to see this. But what, ha- what has happened is, is Jesus and his apostles, last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he was almost killed. And he escapes, and his, his, his disciples escape with him, and they, they, they shoot over to the other side of the Jordan River. They're in a place called Perea. 
kind of off the religious leaders in Jerusalem's radar. And it's a good thing because the religious leaders in Jerusalem said, next time he comes back, we're not going to miss. You know, he's done. And everybody knows that Jesus has got a contract out on him. And so they're on the other side of the Jordan. And the the disciples are probably going, okay, it's safe over here. Until Jesus says, I need to go back towards Jerusalem. And they're going, oh, no, what are you doing? Don't you forget? Let's not go there. And Jesus says, no, I'm going. And and, and finally, I mean, if I'm one of the disciples, what what do you think? I'm thinking, well, um, if you, I mean, when you return, Jesus, I'll tell you what, stop by here and you can pick us all up. Uh, And Thomas steps in. And Thomas steps in, John 11, 16. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is like the, the quintessential Eeyore, you know, oh, everyone's going to die, we're going to die. Let's just, it just does a ama- Now, an optimist, right, would look at this and say, ah, it's all going to work out. Jesus is cool. Let's go. Uh, but a pessimist, it's hard to follow when you're a pessimist because it's worst case scenario all the time for everything, right? But he rallies the troops, the guys. He says, hey, guys, are we in with them or not? Thomas knows he'd rather die with Jesus than live without Jesus. Incredible devotion. And at this one point, it seems that the rest of the the disciples listened because they all ended up going. Thomas was a uh, man of devotion. He was a pessimist. Thomas was also, though, a spiritual failure. He was kind of like us. Our our spiritual eyes are bigger than our spiritual stomach. We usually boast for things that we really can't do or don't do. Same thing with Thomas. Just a few days later there in Gethsemane. They just had what, what we know as the Last Supper, but they didn't know it at that point, their Passover. They're in Gethsemane. Jesus is off praying. They're over here sleeping. And the temple and Roman guards come to get Jesus. And there's a ruckus and something happens. Look what it says. Then everyone, that's all the disciples, deserted him, Jesus, and fled. Thomas, too, ran away. Now, you ever fail spiritually? You know what you should do. Well, you should have said that one time and you should have defended him. And you, it was perfect timing and you just chickened out. Thomas knows. Uh, Thomas, Thomas was a failure uh, spiritually. Thomas was also, though, a man uh, of doubt. I'm going to text in front of us this morning. It says, now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Again, it is... It had been a, a week. Jesus came on Easter. It's like a week after Easter. He came to, uh, you know, Judas had died. So the ten that were left, minus Thomas, Jesus came to him. Thomas wasn't there. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Um, and a couple things. Notice, he doesn't say, I cannot believe. That's what we say. I can't believe. It's a choice. I will not believe. In uh, Greek, there are different ways to say, to say no. Uh, three different ways, three different levels of intensity. Let me give you an example. Let's say, guys, you wanna, you're, you're living in this time, you want to ask a girl out. So you say, hey, Esther, Thursday night, chariot races are going on. What do you say? Come with me. It'll be a good time. I got great tickets. We're perfect. It's a great location. Why don't you come? And if Esther really, if she's a very sweet gal, but she just doesn't want to go out with this fine gentleman, she might look at, look at him and say, ooh. Ooh means no thank you. Ooh. But let's just say the guy's persistent. And he pushes on Esther a little bit. He says, Esther, Esther, 
Most girls would love to be in the situation you're in. Listen, you know, this is one of those, the last race of the circuit. Lots of points here. And, you know, Jeff Gordon Stein will be there, you know, and we're going to go to the leading tower of pizza when it's, it's going to be fun. Come on. And she knows she's got to ratchet up a level. And so she looks at him and says, ook, which is, I said, no. Right. But this gentleman is tenacious with his plans. He's going to have Esther. And so he says, he says, you know, Esther, my father gave me the reins to his brand new BMW chariot. (laughs) And I just got a new designer toga and it's going to. And she stops him and says this. She says, oh, man, which means drop dead. (laughs) What part of no, don't you understand? Read my lips. Forget it. That's that's very, really, really intense. Guess what Thomas is, is using here. Ume, I will not believe. Not a chance. And, and you know, who could blame him? Because Thomas saw Jesus crucified. You know, crucifixion is a, uh, just a horrific, horrific, um, torturous death. I've got a, let me read part of a medical examiner's understanding of of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus had just been up all all night, beaten by the guards. And uh, I think it's Dr. Truman Davis writes, In the early morning, battered and bruised, dehydrated and worn out from a sleepless night, Jesus was taken across Jerusalem to the praetorium of the fortress Antonio. It was then, in response to the outcry of the mob, that Pilate ordered Barabbas released and condemned Jesus to scourging and crucifixion. Preparations for Jesus' scourging were carried out at Caesar's orders. The prisoner was stripped of his clothing and his hands tied to a post above his head. The Roman legionnaire stepped forward with the flagrum in his hand. This was a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached near the end of each. The heavy whip was brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the weighted thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continued, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first produced large, deep bruises that were broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back, the entire area was an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it was determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner was near death, the beating was finally stopped. The half-fainting Jesus was then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement, wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers saw a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They threw a robe across his shoulders and placed a stick in his hand for a scepter. They still needed a crown to make their travesty complete. Small flexible branches with long thorns were plated into the shape of a crude crown. The crown was pressed into his scalp, and again there was copious bleeding as the thorns pierced the very vascular tissue. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers took the stick from his hand and struck him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tired of their sadistic sport and tore the robe from his back. The heavy patibulum of the cross was tied across his shoulders. The procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves, and the execution detail of Roman soldiers headed by a centurion began its slow journey along the route which we know today as the Via Dolorosa. In spite of Jesus' efforts to walk erect, 
The weight of the heavy wooden beam, together with the shock produced by copious loss of blood, was too much. He stumbled and fell. The rough wood of the beam gouged into the lacerated skin and muscles of the shoulders. He tried to rise, but human muscles had been pushed beyond their endurance. The centurion, anxious to proceed with the crucifixion, selected Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. Jesus followed, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock. The 650-yard journey from the fortress Antonia to Golgotha was finally complete, and the crucifixion began. Jesus was quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The ligonier felt for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drove a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moved to the other side and repeated the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The left foot was pressed backward against the right foot. With both feet extended, toes down, a nail was driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim was now crucified. As Jesus slowly sagged down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating fiery pain shot along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrist were putting pressure on the medium nerve, large nerve trunks which traversed the mid-wrist and hand. As he pushed himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he placed his full weight on the nail through his feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurred. As the arms fatigued, great waves of cramps swept over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. He suffered hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, Intermittent partial asphyxiation and searing pain as tissue was torn from his lacerated back from his movement up and down against the rough timbers of the cross. Then another agony began. A deep, crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium, the sac surrounding the heart, slowly filled with serum and began to compress the heart. The end was rapidly approaching. The loss of tissue fluids had reached a critical level. The compressed heart was struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood to the tissues, and the tortured lungs were making a frantic effort to inhale small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues sent their flood of stimuli to the brain. The common method for ending a crucifixion was by the breaking of the bones of the leg. This prevented the victim from pushing himself upward. The tension could not be relieved from the muscles of the chest, and rapid suffocation occurred. The legs of the two thieves were broken. But when the soldiers approached Jesus, they saw that this was not necessary. Apparently, to make doubly sure of death, the ligonier drove his lance between the ribs, upward through the pericardium and into the heart. John 19.34 states, Immediately there came out blood and water. Thus, there was an escape of watery fluid from the sac surrounding the heart and the blood of the interior of the heart. This is rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus died not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. Thomas saw that happen. And then he saw a couple of folk take 75 pounds, according to John 19, of gum spices and cloth and and mummified Jesus, what was left of his body. And Thomas is thinking, what are you talking about? He rose from the dead. Didn't you see what I said? No one rise, no one re- resuscitates from that. That's because this was not a resuscitation. You know, three minutes without, without oxygen and your brain begins to, to deteriorate. There's damage done. Jesus was in the grave three days. Heart not pumping for three days. No, no, no brain waves. For three days. I mean, your body is, is decomposed. What, what is this? Don't tell me about resurrection. Jesus alive from the dead. 
Now, before we, we slam Thomas, we've got to keep in mind the other guys already saw Jesus uh, resurrected. Thomas did not. And so he came and said, unless I see. Well, it's a week later, verse 26. His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Significantly, the disciples had not seen Jesus, to our understanding, since the last time they talked with Thomas. In other words, no one ran to Jesus saying, Jesus, Thomas is really struggling with this. You know, I mean, he's kind of a, he's saying he's not going to believe unless he... No one shared this with Jesus, which means this. Jesus knew Thomas's doubts. You know, this, Jesus knows those doubts in the back of your mind. That maybe you've vocalized, maybe not. He knows. And he doesn't come to Thomas beating him up because of such things. He knows what, what Thomas is, is struggling with. Let me ask you, have you been through something in your life, some hard thing, a Steve Jobs thing, uh, and you felt Mark Harris thing, you start feeling far away from God. And you had your doubts, and they were, they were huge, and God seemed very far away. You need to know he wasn't, and he's not very far away. God doesn't come close to us when our faith is strong and then leave us and then halfway through if our own faith is so-so. He is there. He was with He was with Thomas. He's with you. Let me read this. Several years ago, uh, Mary Stevenson wrote a poem. A very, very famous poem. But it addresses this. It says, One night I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. In each scene I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times there was one set of footprints. Well, this bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life, when I was suffering from anguish or sorrow or defeat, I could see only one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, you promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I've noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there have been only one set of footprints in the sand. Why? When I needed you the most, why have you not been there for me? And the Lord replied, the times when you have seen only one set of footprints are when I carried you. No. And when you sense he's not around. Oh, he's, he's very much around. If he's God, he's there all, all the time. He's very, very much around. And he knows. And so, verse 28 Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, some have said that what Thomas is saying there is he's like saying, oh, my goodness, it's a, I, I can't believe it. But to use the Lord's name in vain for a first century Jewish person, which is not an option. Thomas is very clear what he's saying. He's calling Jesus God, which is a, a, a act punishable by death. Unless it's true. Thomas recognized it was true. And then for Jesus to accept that praise. Some said Jesus never claimed to be God. He was just a good man. For Jesus to accept that praise was again a sin punishable by death. Unless it was true. Jesus didn't say, Thomas, you're not, you're not correct here. It was true. Thomas had moved from, from that field of being a doubter to the field of being a believer. He was obeying Jesus when Jesus said, stop doubting and believe. Again, it's not an issue of I can't. It's, oh, it's an issue of you won't. It's an issue of choice. 
Then Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And you might say, ah, that's the issue. It takes faith, and I'm glad you're a person of faith. That's great. But me, not me. I'm a man of science and, and fact and data. And, and I, that's, I'm not going to base my life on faith. I'm going to base my, my life on, on reality and, and truth. And, and, and that's the way that is. Well, first of all, just so you know, there's several wrong things with that proposition. First of all, our perceptions can be skewed. Right? I, 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 I know that you can cut off a woman's head. And roll it down the table the whole time she's smiling at you. Roll it back, put it back on, and she's fine. Not even anybody. I've I've seen this happen. Really, I have. David Copperfield did that, and it was just incredible. I kept, but I saw it. Our perceptions can be skewed. They tell us sometimes that, that, that pilots, jet pilots, through the the, the clouds, a spatial disorientation, uh, where they they sense that they are that they are upside down. But all of their control says, no, no, they're right side up. But everything inside them says, no, I am upside down. And so as they try to right the plane, what will happen if they're going by how they sense versus their controls, they're going to turn this thing right into the ground. They have to put aside how they're sensing and how they're feeling, recognizing that that may not be what's true. If we make our our decisions simply on on our perceptions, it's going to constantly always and always always be, be changing. Won't it? It will be. Also, you need to know if that's your your proposition, unless I see you, you preclude all of history, don't you? Uh, in in uh, uh, next week, actually start leaving today. We're going to my wife's uh, parents house in southern Indiana. From there, we're going on some day trips. And one of the day trips, we're going to Springfield, Illinois, one of my favorite museums, the Abraham Lincoln Museum. We're going to see his tomb and we're going to see his museum and his house where he, he and Mary lived. And, uh, now, if you have that kind of mindset, though, worldview says, unless I see, I will not believe. Well, have you seen Abraham Lincoln? I mean, yeah, that's the tomb, but let's face it, he may not really be there. Probably he never really existed. Yeah, I know this picture on the $5, but that, what's up? that's an artist thing. That's not a real picture. You, you can't have a mindset that says, unless I see, and, and accept any kind of, of history. Also, if I'm not mistaken, look at this text. Doesn't Jesus himself seem to say, that you can believe by not seeing. As a matter of fact, it's, it's preferred that you're that way. There's a special blessing associated with, with that. Also, here's the deal. You cannot live that worldview out. You, you just can't live that world. It, it's nonsensical. Blaise Pascal was a, a mathematician, a uh, physicist, a philosopher, lived in France, 17th century. He was a Christian. Uh, but his philosopher friends were not. And they said, oh, Pascal, I'm so glad you're a man of faith. But I am a man of, of truth and reality and science. And, and Pascal said, well, hang on. Hang on. Um, there, there are two people, person A, person B. Person A believes in an afterlife and believes that that what you believe down here and what you do will affect your afterlife. And person B does not believe in an afterlife, or if he does, what you believe and what you do on here is not going to impact it at all. Person A believes in God, even though you cannot empirically prove God. You can't empirically prove his propositions, but he still believes it. The second person, according to Pascal, also lives by faith because he cannot prove his propositions empirically either, that there is no God. 
or, or, or that that what he does down here will not impact his eternal state. And Pascal says both people are waging their future, their eternal future, based on, on a faith designed, uh, not proven empirically proposition. And this is true, not just for religious stuff. Tim Keller points out this is true about lots of life. Love, right? You're trying to pick a wife. You're trying, science is not going to help you, right? You're thinking, okay, is she, is she compatible? Is she, does she like me? Do I like her? You know, are we going to work together? My brother and I used to say, is the secret something there? You know, is the secret something a part of this? You know, good questions. You need to ask them. But you know what? Science is not going to help you determine if she's the right one or not. Uh, likewise, epistemological things and aesthetic things. Science is great, but it is not going to answer those questions for you. Now, this does not mean it's a blind leap in the dark. There are evidences. We don't believe in the resurrection in spite of reality, but because of the evidences. It's not a blind leap in the dark, but to say that faith is involved. Now, now what do you do? With those questions that come up, those doubts, how do you do it? Look at this. I mean, yes, Jesus, the physical resurrected Jesus came to Thomas. Thomas was in a different sort of scenario. I think you'll agree with me. He walked with the physical Jesus before the, the death. Uh, Jesus showed himself there were 500 people 40 days and then he, he ascended. So he, uh, he hasn't come back in that physical state uh, to prove since then. So how do we deal with our, our, our doubts? Maybe you've said this. I know I've said this. God, if you'll just show me a sign, I'll be in a hundred of Verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, my book, all these things were written about Jesus so that... Through the written page, you might believe. I mean, here's the deal. If your faith is going to be based on some supernatural event, then what's going to happen if, if you do get the supernatural event is down the road, something bad's going to go on. You're going to question, did I really see what I thought? Did I really understand? Uh, if you start off with the premise, you see, you start off with the premise, there are no miracles. You know what? If you did get that supernatural sign, you would explain it away as coincidence or freak of nature. Or I'm not sure, but certainly it wasn't God because there is no God. This is, this is the way it is. And yet John is saying that which is going to transform our doubts into belief is the written word of God. Let me, let me read this for you. This is fascinating. Luke 16. There's a guy, just give you background, there's a guy in hell talking to a guy in heaven. There's this, there's this big gap between them. They're talking back and forth. And the guy in hell says this. He says, uh, verse 27 of 16 of Luke, he says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Now, of course, Moses and the prophets are all dead at this point. He's talking about the word of God. Let them listen to the word of God. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. The guards go to the Sanhedrin and go, he rose from the dead. Did they say, oh, he was the Messiah? 
No, they pay the guards money to start up a lie to say, well, let's here, just tell people that his disciples uh, stole the body. If you start off with this premise that you're just not going to believe, you know, what? if you're waiting for supernatural proof of it to, to get, it's never going to get there. You're never going to get there. There's the challenge. Maybe you're, the church is doing something uh, kind of cool right now. We're reading through the New Testament. There are guides in the, at the information booth. There's some left still if you want to grab one. But if you're not doing that, let me encourage you to do this. Grab your Bible from home. If you don't have a Bible, then take one out of the pew. That's fine. I said you could do that. Go there. I'll get in trouble, but that's okay. No, I won't. Find the book of John. And remember, John has said, the reason why I wrote this stuff is so that you would believe. And open it up. Read a chapter a day. There's short chapters. And say, say, God, if you're real, would you teach me? Would you show me? I believe God is going to give you exactly what you need. Now, it might not be what you want, but just like with Thomas, he gave Thomas exactly what Thomas needed. He'll give that to you. Listen, this is if you believer, follower of Christ. This is one of the reasons why we're in the word and not so we can check the box, not because it's what good Christians do so that our belief might be strengthened. You find somebody whose belief is, is weak, and it's not hard to find. You talk, talk with them. Their amount of time in God's Word has pretty much dwindled to nothing because the two are interrelated as we spend time in God's Word. Now, when I was uh, at Moody, I was going through that hard time. I remember I'm on my bedside, I'm crying, and I made a deal with God. I don't recommend that you do this, but I made a deal with God. I said, okay, listen, God, this is the way we're going to do this. I said, I'm going I'm to understand this as best as I can. And I'm going to try hard to figure this out. And then I'm going to live my life based on it. And then when I see you face to face one day, my life will be your fault. That's a hard thing to say to God, isn't it? But here's the wild thing. I think God would say, and I didn't hear an audible voice, but it was almost a sense of my spirit. God said, okay, I'll take you up on that, Mark. You live your life based on my word. Anything that happens to you is my fault. I'll take you up on that. God's word is given to, to change us. And when you look at, at Thomas, from this point on, Thomas, his doubterness was gone. Uh, tradition says he went to India and planted many churches telling them, listen, you guys, I'm telling you about the resurrected Christ will change your life. I know you don't have to see it because if you don't see and believe, there's a special blessing with you. Uh, at one point, Thomas didn't flee. He was said that Spears Point denied Christ. He wouldn't, and he was run through with the spear. Tradition says he was martyred. Uh, your doubt need not preclude. It need not derail uh, belief. You get to a point. You look. You check it out. You get to a point where you say, I am choosing to believe. That's what Jesus said, do. So, so let me ask you, where are you today with that?